So for this uh, second hour, we're going to be looking at the the book of Ruth. So uh, for those of you, uh, if you want to follow along, feel free to, to jump into the book of Ruth. We won't be doing it like a verse by verse, uh, but I'll be kind of picking out passages, reading it, uh, and looking. But we will move through the entire book. So if you'd like to follow, around, follow along, uh, we'll be moving through the book of Ruth. And I think so so often when we when we approach our, our study of the Bible, and you know rightfully so, we take an approach that we we try to we look at verses or we look at passage, passages, uh, and then we try to study them out, just the, the individual verse or the passage, and we we have a, a tendency to want to remove it or not look at the larger uh, context, uh, and this is uh, problematic really with the Old Testament and, and some of the narrative, the Old Testament historical books, books like Ruth, uh, but also in, in sometimes when we are studying, for instance, the Gospels, uh, that becomes problematic as well. We take characters out of their historical context uh, in, in order to push a moralistic lesson. And of course, I'm not saying that there's no, reason, there's no place for uh, ex- expositional preaching or, or studying out a particular portion of, of Scripture uh, quite the opposite. Uh, I think it's right, it's proper to, to methodically work through a text of Scripture in order to uncover what God would have for us uh, in a particular book. What I'm saying, though, for this morning and what I, I hope to um, show is that uh, from time to time it's helpful to also uh, see the grand arc, the, the larger arc of a, a biblical book all at one sitting. Uh, after all, in so many cases, these the books of the Bible, and, and in particular the books of the Old Testament, uh, would be read in, in their entirety in one sitting. So, in the new, even in the New Testament, so if the Book of Ephesians, for instance, uh, the Book of Joshua, you would have just sat through this book. They would have read it all in one sitting, and you would have heard it all at this in just in one one go. So, on occasion, then I think it's helpful to to move through an entire book all in one sitting, focusing on the larger message. Uh, that's contained in the book, and then seeing how that book, that, that larger message that's in the book, has relevance for our lives today. And so, I, as I said this morning, we'll be talking, taking a look at the Old Testament book of Ruth, and, and my goal is to move that through that entire book in just one setting. So, Pastor ended pretty much on time, so I think we should be able to get through our, the material. Uh, I say Old Testament because uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth, because uh, no doubt most of us sitting here uh, know that the book of Ruth is in the Old Testament, but not everyone likely does. Uh, the Bible is divided between the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament is in the front of your Bibles. The New Testament uh, is in the second part of the Bible. And the book, the book of Ruth that we're looking at reflects an early time in the history of the nation of Israel. So it's a time before the kings of Israel began to rule. And as we, we begin to uh, look at, begin the lesson, we need to think about a couple questions as we're kind of put some questions in our mind as, as we get into this book. So how do we, how should we understand the book of Ruth? Is it primarily about the characters, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz? Is it mainly a book about God's willingness to accept all people because Ruth is a Gentile, she's from a different nation than Israel, and sometimes people will say, well, it's, it's God's uh, you know, it's a book highlighting that God is accepting of all people, not just the nation of Israel. Is it meant as a biblical love story between the two characters of Ruth and Boaz? Is it an allegory 
for Christ and the church. So does, do the characters represent Christ, Christ's love for the church? And so the, the spoiler alert there is no, it's not. That's not what it is for that last one. So is it all of these, none of these? Is it wrong to pick one of those questions, pick one of those topics, focus on it exclusively because it, we feel like it fits the best? Uh, and I think there's a bigger question of how do we read the historical books in the Old Testament? How do we read these non-fictional stories contained in them? How do we read stories about Noah? How do we read stories about Samson, David and Goliath, Esther? Typically, the, these type of stories are hit hard and they're hit often in children's church, in children's Sunday schools. We don't typically hear many sermons on these, these uh, characters and on these stories of the Old Testament in, in, uh, on Sunday, Sunday morning. So my goal is that we can understand this book of Ruth and its, its message better and how it applies to our lives today in Downriver, Michigan in 2017. And then how can we read these historical books and stories and better appreciate their message and their application for our lives, not just how they apply to our kids. So moving, moving quickly into the book of Ruth, the book t- itself takes place during a period of time in Israel's history known as the time of Judges. The time of, of Judges was roughly 1200 to uh, 1000 BC, so almost 3000 years ago, a little over 3000 years ago. And this corresponds that, that early, the 1200 date, uh, corresponds with the death of Joshua, and then, Mo, who was Moses' successor, and ends with the period, uh, that start, that has the coronation of Saul, who was the first king of Israel. So those are the kind of the bookmarks that mark off the period of the judges. The death of Joshua and the coronation of Saul. And so the placement of this book, uh, in, in your Bibles, it's located between the book of Judges and the book of books of first and second Samuel also help us to have a little more insight on what is the purpose or what is this book's role. It's a segue between the period of judges and the period of kings in the nation of Israel's history. It answers a question that would have likely arisen in the minds of the average Israelite. How did God fulfill his promise for a king when there was such spiritual decay in the nations? And we'll kind of uh, flesh that out, the spiritual decay that was going on in the nation of Israel at the time. So how did God fulfill his promise? So the promise was given in, uh, in the very first books of the Bible. So in Genesis, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll be reading the passages. Genesis 49 and verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches down and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wines, his teeth whiter than milk. So there's this prophecy given in the very first book of the Bible, the Genesis. And then in Deuteronomy, a few books later, uh, another prophecy, Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us have a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint you over you a king the Lord your God chooses. So the people of Israel were expecting a king. God had prophesied that this was going to happen. 
And so the question is, how do we get this king that we, uh, how would we get this king in light of all this, what's going on? Or how did, you know, when it was written, it takes place in the period of Judges, but when it was written much later, the question is, how did we get here? How do we have this king? So the book gives its readers insight on how God preserved and fulfilled his promises to the Israelites for a king. And underlying that thread and what is applicable to us today is how God is actively at work in his creation, bringing about his appointed ends, directing history toward his goal, even when things around us seem so dark. And I think it's a good, uh, it's a good follow-up to this morning's sermon. And the story itself unfolds in four acts, four scenes that focus our attention that correspond with the chapters in the book. So Act 1 or Chapter 1, uh, it's in the first act of our historical short story of Ruth. We're introduced to the characters of the book and some historical context that is important to keep in mind as we move through this book. So the, the, the writer of the book gives us some details that we need to keep in mind as we move through the book of Ruth. Uh, these things will, will, will color what happens and color the characters. And I think sometimes as we read the books of the Old Testament, we're tempted to kind of move quickly. We see some information, we don't really understand what's going on, and we just want to get to the, the meat of the story, the real substance, the action. And I think that, that desire is in large part due to our unfamiliarity with the names and the places being mentioned. So here in the first chapter of Ruth, we'll read names like Elimelech, Orpah, Mahlon, Kilian, these are names that are foreign to us. We stumble. How do we even pronounce these names? I don't know what any of this means. The foreignness of it. And we read about places like Moab. You may not, you know, you may not even know where that's at. And so one of the things we see right away when we spend time in the Old Testament, and in particular these historical books, is that we need to work a bit harder to understand. We need to be willing to spend a bit more time initially so that we can understand the details of why this information, why did the author even put it in here? And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 1 that this book, that the story takes place in the time of Judges. So that's in that first line, in the time of Judges. So this is an important point to keep in mind, and you've probably now I've hit it a bunch of times as we work through this unfolding story. The book of Judges, which is the context for the story of Ruth, takes place, as I said, after the leadership of Joshua. And was a, it was a time marked by apostasy and idolatry. That is, they were ter- people of Israel were turning away from God and following false gods. Judges 2.12 says, They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. It was in this spiritual context that God raised up local leaders, local chieftains or judges to deliver them from the people and the nations around them. And these people, these judges, were people were largely local military leaders. They weren't like uh, national political leaders. They weren't like the king or uh, over the whole nation. The book of Judges is a, is a historical recounting of this cycle. The people would sin. The Lord would send a judgment in the form of a foreign army and invasion. A judge, a local judge would rise up to lead the people of Israel. The nation would repent of their sin. Then the judge would die and the cycle would start over again. And so this cycle in the time of judges, it's just over and over cycle. And a key theme that characterized the nation as a whole 
during this period of time, if we were to turn to Judges 17.6, it says, everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, each person did what they considered to be right. And so as we read, Ruth, the context of apostasy and idolatry, of subjective morality, needs to be in the back of our mind because it, it helps us to understand why the characters act the way they do. So returning to Ruth, when we read the events of the story and that they took place in this period of time, it's meant to give us a clue to the spiritual state of the nation of Israel at that time. Importantly, and so we read in that first chapter that there was a famine in the land. It may be, uh, there's some question on if it exactly is, but it may be that the famine was also part of God's judgment brought on the nation for their apostasy. And that one phrase, in the, in the days when the judges rules, ruled, helps us to see that the people at the time are doing whatever they think is right in their own opinion. There was a, a general spirit of apostasy, and there was no king over the nation to provide general leadership for the people. And we'll see why all this is significant as the story unfolds. Uh, we're told in chapter 1 that this man, Elimelech, and his family, his wife Naomi, his two sons, Mahlon and Kilian, uh, were also told that their family originated in Bethlehem. No doubt we've all heard of Bethlehem, situated just south of Jerusalem. And that due to this famine that happens, the, the, the family, the, the, the man decides, I'm going to take my family, we're going to leave Bethlehem, and we're going to move uh, southeast to the, what would be, uh, to, to the fields of Moab, to what modern-day Jordan And after arriving there, the two sons marry foreign women, Moabite women, and after ten years, the husband and the two sons die. It leaves Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws behind in Moab. So in the space of the first five verses, all this information happens. We're given all this information right off the bat, first five verses of the the book. It's like if you ever ever watch Star Wars, uh, a few of you may have seen that movie before, Always when you start Star Wars, there's that big screen crawl, the story, the back line, the yellow letters that start at the beginning of the movie, and you get all this information. You know, the, this happened here, there's this great battle, rebellion's all going on, and then all of a sudden you're right into the story and you see Luke standing in, in Tatooine or something. And that's pretty much what's going on. You're given all this information right off the bat in the first five verses, and then now you're right into the story. And the purpose of that introduction is that it gives us the setting, the characters, and then introduces this problem. And our natural reaction, if you're paying attention to what you're reading, is to ask, okay, now what? What happens? What happens to Naomi? What happens to these two Moabite daughter, daughter-in-laws of hers? What are they going to do? Because now they're in Moab. There's no men to protect them. And it's this crisis, much like that famine that forces the, uh, Elimelech to take his family and leave Bethlehem, and it forces this now this crisis of being left alone with no men in their lives. It forces Naomi and her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, to make some decisions. And in that culture and at that time, a woman's fortune was tied to her, her, her future was tied to her, her husband and her family. And so we have three women who all lost their husband, now have a bleak future. There's no family. They're away from their nation of Israel. They're all just out on their own. They have no men to protect them, and now they need to figure out, what are we going to do? The story tells us that Naomi heard that the Lord had met the needs of his nation Israel, decided that she needed to take her chances with uh, with her own people. 
And she decides, you know, I need to go back to Israel. I need to go back to Bethlehem to where my family is. And so she tells the two young ladies, her daughters-in-law, they should return to their families and remarry and start new lives. And then we, we get a glimpse, then, if we, we, as we read it, we get a glimpse of the relationship that was forged between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. If we read 110, it says, They said to her, We insist on returning to you, with you to your people. These women had, in a very real sense, formed emotional bonds together and didn't want to just break those in light of the, the bleak circumstances they now faced. Naomi, though, perhaps realizing that they, she could do little for these men. She didn't know what she was going to do. Her best idea was, you know what, I just need to go back. I need to go home. And so she doesn't know if there's anything for her back home, if she doesn't have any future there. And she wants the best for these two young ladies. So she says, no, you guys have to go home. You have to return to your families. And so following, they have two exchanges. And after the second exchange of her telling them and them refusing, and then she tells them again, and then the one daughter agrees. Orpa agrees. She returns to her own people and to her former home, former home. Ruth, however, refuses. She gives this impassioned speech to Naomi. And so if you've ever read the book of Ruth, you're no doubt familiar with, the, with this, her words. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. No doubt you've heard that before if you've read this book. And if we consider the responses of these two young women and we're honest with ourselves... I think we acknowledge that realistically, the other daughter-in-law, Orpah, her response was really the rational one. We have no evidence at this point in the text that either of the girls are, are believers in Israel's God. So when Naomi tells Orpah to return to her family and that her future, if she chose to stay with Naomi and return to Bethlehem, was one that looked bleak, it would be natural for that young woman to choose the option that held out the chance of her being remarried. A chance of being with her, her family, people who love her. A chance of restarting her family and her identity. Because remember, her women's identity were tied up with men at that time. In particular, because of her widowhood. Ruth's response, however, stands out. And as one commentator has said, as exceptional. Uh, another commentator here says, Orpah was not a bad person. On the contrary, she was a good daughter-in-law who had treated Naomi well. She deserved and received Naomi's blessing in verse 8. But Ruth was beyond good. Her love for Naomi transcended the norm. The contrast between the two, two, two girls should not be expressed as a polarity. That is good versus bad. And that's how we oftentimes we want to look at these things. One was good, one was bad. But rather, he says, we should be looking at it in terms of degree. One was good, one was great. And that's how we really want to be looking at the, the, those, these two girls. The Hebrew text, by the way, gives the idea that Ruth's famous statement uh, was one that she was already identifying with Naomi and her people and, a God, and her Naomi's God. In other words, she was saying, your people are my people and your God is my God. It was not the future tense. It's not like she was saying, your people will be. She's saying, your people already are my people. Your God already is my God. Ruth's reply showed that she was displaying a faithfulness to Naomi that wouldn't be shaken by the unknown. It couldn't be swayed by fear of a bleak future. If you remember, I spent quite a deal, uh, probably too much time, talking about this, this climate of Israel in the time of Judges. And this memory makes Ruth's actions and faithfulness all the more noteworthy. 
if we use a modern buzzword, it's the idea of radical. She was, a, she was really a, uh, acting in a quite a radical way. The, normal, the norm would be, I need to do what's best for me. I need to do uh, whatever I can to try to increase my chances at having a gr- good future. Naomi went over and above what she, she was dedicated to, to Ruth. Or excuse me, Ruth went over and above and was dedicated to Naomi. Ruth's determination meant that she and Naomi would return to Bethlehem where Naomi had come from and look for her, their futures together. There's a curious scene there at the end of chapter 1 where the townspeople, it's, the scene is basically uh, Ruth and Naomi re-entering the town of Bethlehem and all the people, the townspeople there gather and they're asking, is this, is this woman Naomi? But Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. Because she goes on to say, she blames her situation on God. The loss of her husband, the loss of her sons. She sees her current state as a very personal judgment at God's hands. And so if we, we imagine the scene in our minds, Naomi is standing there between, before the town. Everyone's gathered, all these people. And they're all saying, is that... Is that that young Naomi? She left us 10 years ago. What happened to her? You know, what happened? Who is, is this really her? Where's her whole family? And all there is is this young foreign woman following her. And the narrative forces us to focus squarely on Naomi and her indictment of God. She says, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so although this first scene of Ruth has multiple themes that come out, for instance, the faithfulness of Ruth to Naomi, the main theme of the book is, is unspoken but clearly out front. God's sovereign control over his creation. God is directing people. He's directing events towards his appointed end. He alone is sovereign over nature in bringing about the drought that forces the family to move. He's sovereign over life and death that forces Naomi and, the, and Ruth to re- return. Even in the the seemingly innocuous choices made by the people in the story, God is bringing about his desired end. And so if we look at uh, chapter 2, Act 2, we're introduced to this man, Boaz. So we we meet the first two main characters, Ruth, Naomi. We give them a little background. Now we're introduced to this this man, Boaz. 2-1 tells us, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's former husband. And that he was a man of some type of social standing. He was wealthy or he was a good businessman. And after this brief introduction in that first verse, we're right back into the story. And we're told of a plan that's hatched out by Ruth to provide for the physical needs of her and Naomi. She's going to go into this field. She's going to find a field and she's going to glean barley. And pick a little bit here, pick a little bit there. Gleaning at that time, basically, people would uh, pick ha- crops by hand. And then poor people, widows, would come in and whatever was dropped on the ground or whatever was left behind, they would pick up and they were allowed to take that. And so she thinks this is basically, it's one step above begging because you're actually doing the work. But, you know, you're, you're all dependent on whatever was left behind by the farmers or the, the harvesters. And so she thinks, you know, I, this is our only chance. We're poor. We have no one to support us. This is it. I have to provide for Naomi and myself. And this is what I'm going to do. And again, we see Ruth's extraordinary faithfulness. It's highlighted for again in the story. She's a foreigner, remember? She's a Moabite. 
The general atmosphere of the culture was one of lawlessness. She was a widowed single woman. She had no one to protect her, and she had no recourse in case something bad happens. And yet she decides to go on her own, to go out and find some way that she can provide for her and her mother-in-law. And it just so happens that she ends up in the field of Boaz. As we're reading the story, oh wow, she just happens on Bo- in Boaz's field, Naomi's relative. She doesn't know this at the time. Boaz's first words that are recorded for us in the text give us the, an inkling of what kind of person he is. One who values and respects others. He greets his workers. The Lord be with you. And they reply in kind. The Lord bless you. He immediately notices this young woman. Who's this, you know, in his mind. He sees his workers. He greets them. Presumably like he does every day. And then sees this woman. Who's this woman? I don't, what's she doing here? He asks the foreman who she is. Gives, the foreman tells him who, who Ruth is. What's been going on with her. Why she's there. And then further confirming Boaz's character, he immediately goes to her. He finds out who she is. He immediately goes to her. And in verse uh, 8 of chapter 2 says, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and, to, and follow along the, with the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And wherever you, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. So the scene is heavy with Boaz's care and concern for this woman. He, he doesn't even know her. He hasn't met her. He's only heard about her. He's not, we don't have any idea that he's, uh, other than basically he's living out his beliefs. Boaz's tangible faithfulness as opposed to just lip service. He tells Ruth, stay in the field, stay close to the women, he warns her about the men. He warns the men to not, uh, excuse me, to not mistreat her and provides water for her. We're all behaviors that went over and above what was expected to be done. Remember, uh, the Israelites were, were commanded to let people to leave, not to pick uh, the field clean, that they had to leave, a, you know, whatever was left was to, for people to glean. So that's all he was expected to do was just, you know, don't pick up the crumbs, leave them there for the poor people. If he fulfilled that, he was fulfilling the law and there was no, nothing going wrong. But what does he do? He goes over and above that. He makes sure she's protected. He tells her to stay there and he tells her to, you know, there's water for her whenever she needs it. Boaz, like Ruth, stands out against the culture of that time during the time of Judges as one whose faith in God was tangible and mature. And Ruth recognizes this. So much so that she says in verse 10 of chapter 2, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz's response to her question informs us that not, that not just Boaz, but the whole town had taken note of Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi, saying, he's, uh, this is Boaz's words to Ruth, I've been told, told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Apparently word had spread. Ruth's actions toward Naomi were such that people took notice of this young foreign woman. You can, you can just imagine the talk. Hey, have you seen old Naomi? She's back. She's a, she's a hot mess, but she's back. And then the people would say, yeah, but did you see, did you see that young Ruth? She's a Moabite and she's actually taking care of her mother-in-law. And so that's the kind of thing going on in this small town. The testimony, Ruth's, the testimony of Ruth's quiet faithfulness. The Moabites, who where Ruth was from, remember she's a Moabite, 
were people always presented as the antagonist of Israel throughout the Old Testament. No one would have expected that a Moabite, of all people, uh, who were always seen in a negative light, to turn around and be a blessing to, the, to someone from Israel. Near the end of chapter 2, we see another scene where Boaz invites Ruth to sit with him and his co-workers, or his workers, his employees, for a midday meal. He gives bread uh, and provisions, roasted grain, so much that she has extra, and she returns it with the extra back to Naomi. He tells his men not to just let her glean behind them, but to actually leave stalks. Don't pick all the stalks clean. Just leave whole stalks behind for her. And it's... And there's no ulterior motive presented in the story. It's not like he's trying to get something from her. He's not trying to, uh, you know, uh, work some kind of angle. He wasn't, doesn't say that he was attracted to her or that he hoped to marry her. Simply that he sought to be a blessing to this, one, this young woman who he had heard was being a blessing to others. Ruth returns home, tells Naomi of her fortune, and then uh, only then does she find out she was gleaning in the field of a relative. And again, we see the main theme in the book, of God's sovereignty coming out in the story. Ruth just happens in to find the field of a family redeemer, of God working in Boaz's heart so that he was ready and willing to provide for the needs of this young woman. And we begin to see the larger purpose of the book take shape, that perhaps not all is lost for the nation of Israel and the promised king. That even in this spiritually bankrupt time of the judges, God was still at work to bring about those things he had spoken of at an earlier point, going back to Genesis and Deuteronomy. So in the third chapter, for uh, Act 3, for anyone familiar with the book, we're presented with this curious and confusing scene. Naomi, uh, remember the mother-in-law, hatches this plan. She tells Ruth, go in the middle of night, put on your best clothes, and then lay at the feet of Boaz, a man she just met. In Ruth, in chapter 3, verse 3, Naomi tells Ruth, Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. A large part of the confusion of what happened, what just occurred or what's going to occur in this, this chapter has to do with the cultural distance. People living in 21st century America, reading about a story that takes place 3,000 years ago in the Middle East. We're trying to wrap our minds around what's going on, what, what is this supposed to represent. It's hard to even imagine what's going on in the minds of the participants. Why would Naomi tell this young woman to engage in such risky behavior? There's so many chances for misinterpretation or danger. Why would Ruth agree? Why would Ruth, Naomi tell this crazy story, do this thing, and Ruth's like, I'm, I'm down. I'm doing it. And she, she doesn't question it. She could be putting herself in a very bad situation. Remember the, this time of judges. The story is clear that there were other men around, that there would be other men around at this time, men who had been drinking, eating and drinking, drinking alcohol. And she was showing up at night unannounced and crawl into the area where, where they slept. He would have no, uh, Boaz would have no idea who she was initially. Why, why was she there? What she hoped to gain? He could have mistaken her behavior in a negative light as if she was hoping to take advantage of him, offer herself physically to him. We're not told any of these details. Only that Naomi suggests, Ruth agrees, and we find out that Boaz 
sees the action as virtuous and positive. One commentator says of this scene, from a natural perspective, the desired response was the least probable. It's unlikely that Boaz would wake up in the dark and in his groggy state notice that Ruth has dressed herself in her finest garment rather than the seductive garb of a prostitute. That he would be sympathetic when she introduced herself. That he would overlook the irregularities of the situation. That is a woman proposing to a man, a younger person proposing to an older, a field worker proposing to the field owner, an alien proposing to a native. And that in fulfillment of Naomi's last words, where she says, he will tell you what to do, that he would give Ruth rational instructions on how to proceed. But by this time, Naomi appeared confident in Boaz's integrity and, importantly, in the hidden hand of God to govern his actions, or his reactions, when he awoke. And as we struggle to close the cultural gap with regard to this scene, the details are so foreign to us that we're, all, we're, at, we're at a loss. There's no parallels to this scene in, throughout the Old Testament. We don't see anything like it uh, and have anything to compare it to. The narrator, narrator doesn't give us any insight, so it's difficult to, at best to how we, we should judge the scene. What we can take away and what I think we should focus in then is not so much the details and the foreignness, but the conversation that takes place there on the threshing floor between Ruth and Boaz. Because as she tells it is exactly how it unfolds. She goes, after he's been eating and drinking, he falls asleep, she slides in, she uncovers, uncovers uh, his feet, the blanket, and lays down there. And then Boaz says in, in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, although it is true that I'm your, I am a guardian redeemer of your family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So this late night exchange informs us that although Boaz was more than willing to fulfill his role of redeemer, he couldn't do so without first following the accepted protocols which meant going to the other family member who had, who had the preeminent claim over Elimelech's property and family well-being after his death. And so this idea of redeemer is really uh, one of the uh, uh, important concepts. So the idea of redeemer, uh, just so you have background, uh, something sometimes is referred to the kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer, comes from the Hebrew word goel, uh, the Redeemer relates to Israel, Israelite family law. So going back to the Old Testament. And the word form used here in Ruth uh, refers specifically to a near relative who is responsible for the economic well-being of the other extended family. For instance, he would be the one charged with buying back property that had passed to people outside the family group. He was purchasing the freedom of individuals who had sold themselves into slavery because of economic hardship. He, he would track down and execute murders of near relatives. So he was the one who was responsible primarily for the economic well-being of the larger extended family. But, all, you know, but it could also be, as I said in that last one, tracking down and executing murders uh, of, of relatives. So then this, the idea of rede- Redeemer. So Ruth in 3.9 calls Boaz her guardian Redeemer. Boaz accepts this role, but also recognized that there was another who should be before him. Part of the reason why Boaz responded so positively to Ruth's presence 
and actions was precisely because she called him this guardian redeemer. By using this term, Ruth identified herself with the clan, the extended family of Elimelech, her former father-in-law. Yet again, we see a tangible manifestation of the faithfulness of Ruth lived out before others in the community. She wasn't just concerned for her own well-being, but for Naomi's, Naomi's as well, and for the hereditary property that needed to stay in the hands of the family. Boaz recognized this. He praised her for her actions, and this evidently moved his heart even more so in her, her direction. Scene three, act three, ends with Ruth recounting the results of the events to Naomi, setting stage for this final scene of the story in chapter four. And so in the final chapter, Boaz goes to this unidentified family member, doesn't tell us who it is, doesn't give us a name, and he goes and inquires about his, this other family member's intention to fulfill his family obligations. Boaz says to this man in chapter 4, verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And the man immediately says, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to redeem the land. But Boaz doesn't stop there. He makes sure it's clear to this man that he's speaking to that he also needs to marry Ruth, take Ruth and marry her, because he has to per, uh, perpetuate the family name. And then at this, at this second part, the man says, you know what, now nah, I'm out. That's, uh, I'm done. No, that's too much. Why he does so, we're not told. And so before all the witnesses, all the, the important people of the town, Boaz is able to fill that role and redeem the land and Ruth. We're able to see that things turn out well for Ruth, for Boaz, for Naomi. The story ends happily. But I think, I think we need to pay special attention to the end of chapter, the end of the book, starting in verse 16. It says, Then Naomi took the child that was born to Ruth and Boaz after their marriage. She takes the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron is the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. It's as if the author wants to make sure that we don't miss the point. The story ends well. We're glad to see that things turn out for the people involved. It's good to see the story of sacrificial love in the Bible. But, but we're strengthened spiritually by being reminded that God's plans cannot be interrupted or upset no matter the circumstances. So often we're tempted to be carried away by the circumstances of the day. We get discouraged when we see evil triumph around us. As you remember what Ken was talking about this morning. We wonder how things will ever turn out well when everywhere we look is darkness. When people around us are doing things that vex us, that, that bother our hearts. It was like that then, during the time of judges in Israel. So what are some takeaways for us then? For one, 
uh, read your Old Testament, right? Spend, spend time reading through the entire book of, an old te- of the Old Testament in one sitting. Take the time. The book of Ruth is something you can read through in 10 minutes. Secondly, don't be afraid of the idea of God's sovereignty. For some, it can be scary and troublesome, uh, a scary and troublesome thought to think about what it means that God is sovereign over his whole creation. How does that even work? Doesn't that mean we don't have any free choices? Does it mean everything is already predetermined and nothing I'm going to do matters anyways? The story of Ruth shows us that God is sovereign. He rules over his creation. He rules over the weather, over life and death. He's at work in the free choices of his people. That even when we do things that are counter to God's expressed will, remember Naomi deciding, or Elimelech deciding we're going to take off from Moab. So even when we do things that are counter to God's expressed will, the end results of it all doesn't catch God off guard. Evil and evil deeds don't block God's plan for moving forward. The bad choices we make don't mean that God can't still bring about his will for his people. And this is good. And this should be reassuring to us as God's people. And related to this, I think the story of Ruth shows us that even in light of God's sovereign control over his creation, our choices and our actions matter. Ruth's decision to exhibit faithfulness to her adopted family mattered. Boaz's decision to act kindly to Ruth when he first met her in the field and didn't have any idea what was to occur in the future mattered. One commentator says about Boaz, Boaz's generous spirit is reflected in the goodwill that existed between him and his field laborers, between him and the elders of Bethlehem, and between, more specifically between him and the other family redeemer in chapter 4. Although Boaz was eager to marry Ruth himself, he willingly invited the primary redeemer to claim her if he so desired. His final act of charity to his fellow citizens of Bethlehem may have been the greatest. He married Ruth the Moabite to secure the name and the estate of his deceased relative. However, his generosity is most evident in his treatment of Ruth. Every response to this alien widow was over the top. In this regard, Boaz serves as a model for all people of faith. Boaz was extraordinarily generous, both with his resources and his words, and in his generosity, we observe the generosity generosity of God. Our choices and our actions matter. During those times when things seem dark around us, you know, as we watch the news and we see all these things happening, things outside of our control, things happening in different parts of the world right now, things in our own family that are outside of our control that seem, you know, uh, spinning out of control. When all we can do is rest in the confidence that God is sovereign and at work even now, we can still... We can still display God's love to others, not just to other Christians, but to others when we're generous with ourselves. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, just thank you for this opportunity this morning to look at the book of Ruth, to see uh, and rejoice with, uh, to see how you are at work, even in those circumstances, and that the, the confidence we have that you're even at work now, at work uh, no matter how dark it looks. And we, we accept that we, it's important for us, the choices we make and the actions we do, that they matter. And so we pray that you would help us to have tender hearts, hearts that uh, manifest our faith in you towards others, that we can love others that we encounter, 
uh, and show thereby show the generosity and love of God to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.